Dear Father, please be with us just now as we consider the book of Deuteronomy and the advice given to these people as they're about to cross the River Jordan. As always, help us to see the face of Jesus in this book. Amen. Well, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law. And this is a book filled with so much advice from Moses to the people as they're about to enter in to the promised land. And, uh, oh no, I hope this is not going to come up again and again. Let's see. It's always computer problems here. Um, But anyway, so we could go in many different directions with this book because there's just so much in here of this book. In this book are the words that Moses spoke to the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness east of the Jordan River. They're about to cross over and this whole book should be considered as last advice from God through Moses to these people. And in case we wonder, you know, maybe it was Moses uh, not quite with it at this point. I mean, it's what, 120 years old. The book concludes he was as strong as ever and his eyesight was still good. All right, so he's still with it. Now, did Moses write every word in the books of Moses? Well, the end of Deuteronomy describes Moses' death. So someone finished off this book here. But there's some fascinating stuff. Moses tells the people how God really has been with them through this whole journey. You saw how he brought you safely all the way to this place, just as a father would carry his son. But in spite of what I said, you still would not trust the Lord. That's what God has wanted all the way through. Trust. You still would not trust the Lord, even though he always went ahead of you to find a place for you to camp, to show you the way. He went in front of you in a pillar of fire by night and in a pillar of cloud by day. Remember how the Lord your God has blessed you in everything that you've done. He's taken care of you as you've wandered through the vast desert. He has been with you these 40 years and you've had everything you needed. Their shoes didn't wear out, manna, water. Uh, He was with them the whole way. But now, does this mean they're going to go in? Finally, the people are good enough. Now they're finally good. Now God is ready to usher them in because they're good enough. Well, that wouldn't appear to be the case. Listen, people of Israel. Today, you are about to cross the Jordan River and occupy the land belonging to the nations greater and more powerful than you. Their cities are large with walls that reach the sky. The people themselves are tall and strong. They're giants. And you've heard it said that no one can stand against them. But now you will see for yourselves that the Lord your God will go ahead of you like a raging fire. He will defeat them as you advance so that you will drive them out and destroy them quickly as he promised. After the Lord your God has driven them out for you, again, we're the people supposed to fight. Uh, We'll talk about this next time. But after the Lord your God has driven them out for you, do not say to yourselves that he brought you in to possess this land because you deserved it. No, the Lord is going to drive these people out for you because they are wicked. And remember the prophecy given to Abraham, the 400-year prophecy, that at this time, that's when the people would enter in. Okay, it's not because the people are now so righteous that they're finally capable of entering in. It's because the nations in that area were so wicked. It is not because you are good and do what is right that the Lord is letting you take the land. He will drive them out because they are wicked and because he intends to keep the promise that he made to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You can be sure that the Lord is not giving you this fertile land because you deserve it. No, you are a stubborn people, but I'm letting you in anyway. Never forget how you made the Lord your God angry in the desert. From the day that you left Egypt until the day you arrived here, you have rebelled against him. So that would be kind of uh, sobering here as they're just about to cross the River Jordan. And 
Um, several years ago, my wife and I read through these books in one stretch over just a several day period of time. And we read through Deuteronomy into Joshua, which is just a very short time later. And now Joshua is being encouraged and trying to tell the people, you know, let's stick together here as we go in. And uh, this verse in Joshua is rather humorous. The people answered Joshua, we will do everything you have told us and we'll go anywhere you send us. We will obey you just as we always obeyed Moses. And uh, I mean, we must have laughed for an hour after we read this because after just reading through rebellion, rebellion, Korah's rebellion, distrust, even Miriam and Aaron, Aaron are against Moses. And now the people are saying, don't worry, Joshua, we'll treat you just like we did Moses. We'll always obey you. So uh, anyway, the people seem to have the impression here that they were pretty good and they needed a history lesson here in Joshua 1. Now, you might wonder why I'm plucking this verse out, but let's just read it and tell me what you think about this in Deuteronomy. Every year, be sure to save a tenth of the crops harvested from whatever you plant in your field. So we're talking about uh, tithing here. But notice the advice. But suppose you can't carry that 10% of your harvest to the place where the Lord chooses to be worshipped. If you live too far away, or if the Lord gives you a big harvest, then sell this part and take the money there instead to this other place. When you and your family arrive, spend the money on food for a big celebration. Buy cattle, sheep, goats, wine, beer. And if there are any other kinds of food that you want, buy those too. Now, is this just a, a translational um, issue here? I mean, what's uh, maybe the contemporary English version missed the boat? Well, you can, King James sounds very sanctified, strong drink. But uh, uh, in a few other versions, new living, wine or other alcoholic drink, the message, wine or beer, anything that looks good to you, God's word version is wine, liquor, whatever you choose. What do we do with verses like this? We just, uh, you know... Parts of the Bible, let's just keep reading. Not sure what to do with this. Um, Well, I mean, don't we like to say things like, you know what, I want to just take the Bible just as it reads. And I want to do just what the Bible says. And I like that attitude, but um, what do you do with a verse like this? I mean, let's say maybe you stayed at a friend's house in Riverside and the journey to Loma Linda is a bit too long this weekend for church. And so, you know... Stop off at a liquor store and use your tithe money there. Have a big celebration. (laughs) We want to apply this very literally uh, to us today. Well, I think in the context, God is being extremely gracious with a group of rebels who are constantly going after idolatry. And so he is, I'd say, condescending in an amazing way just to try to keep these people together at this time. But the issue here is one of inspiration of the Bible, which I think is extremely important, fundamental uh, to our understanding of God, because the Bible can be put together in just about any way that you want to put it together. I mean, we can take out of the Bible, if we come in with a certain mindset, we can find that in the Bible, take it out and confirm what we want to believe. Okay? What is the purpose of the Bible? Well, let's just combine this verse with another in Proverbs, give strong drink to the one who's perishing, and wine to those who are distressed. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Will you do this in the clerkship years, third and fourth year? You bring in some alcohol into the hospital. Um, 
I mean, we could, uh, we could twist these in such a way, you could distort these two verses to say, you know what, I'm going to save up my tithe money and buy a liquor store in a poor neighborhood. I mean, you know, you just think about the devious things that can be done with a certain view of inspiration. What are we looking for in the Bible? And I think that, uh, you know, one attitude might be, well, um, that's Old Testament. Okay, we're past that New Testament. Now there's where we're going to take it exactly as it reads. Everything in the New Testament applies exactly to us today. Well, here's some advice from Paul in 1 Corinthians. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Is it shameful for women to speak in church? The, the point here is that God is, all the way through the Bible, meeting people where they are, in a certain culture, in a certain time. And as we read the Bible, we should not read it with the mindset, okay, I'm looking for do's and don'ts. Here's one, women don't speak in church. It's shameful. Write that one down. Um, here's another one about the wine and the tithe money. Write that one down. Now, what we're searching for in the Bible is the character of God. The Bible is the book that reveals the character of God. That's the foundation of what we're to be looking for in the Bible. And if, we're, if that's our foundation, then we read these verses and we perhaps are amazed at the character of God in condescending to reach people in a certain time. And just as an example of this, the Pharisees thought they had Jesus contradicting the Old Testament. Jesus told them, don't divorce. And so they had him, right? We've got this right in the Old Testament. No problem. So some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus said, haven't you read the scriptures? And that's exactly right. They had read the scriptures. That's why they're coming with this trap. And notice Jesus' reply. They record from the, from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. And the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two, but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. So what Jesus does is he goes all the way back before the sin problem and says, here's the ideal. But now notice what he does with the Old Testament. So they say, well, then why did Moses say in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts, but it was not what God had originally intended. This is fundamental to understanding so many of these difficult passages. They are a concession to our hard hearts. God doesn't like divorce. All right, but it was a concession. And in the Old Testament times, divorce was very cruel. You didn't like your wife, get rid of her, get another one, not a big deal. Okay, well, we need a rule to meet a people in that time. Okay, and so much of the Old Testament we can understand in this way. It's a concession to meet people in a very, uh, in a state of rebellion. There's another one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But now, I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. Uh, this is the hardest of all Jesus' advice to us. But as Christians, we should say, yes, there was apparently a very, very sad time in human history where an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was needed. Very sad time in human history. We're Christians. We're no longer in that model. Our model now is turn the other cheek. 
go the extra mile, uh, return evil with love. To be Christians is to be Christ-like, and this is uh, exactly what Jesus came to bring people out of. Yes, those words are there in the Old Testament, uh, but that is not the ideal. That's a concession to our hard hearts. So again, the Bible is the book that reveals the character of God, not a list of do's and don'ts so much. That's not how we should approach the Bible. So God stoops, we can list a lot of these, but when we were afraid of God at Mount Sinai, Moses intercedes. When we're afraid of God, Jesus intercedes because we needed it. When we hated manna, I'm using us here as the human race, uh, God gave them a list. Okay, you can eat meat, but let me give you a list of some meat that is safe for you to eat. Don't like the manna? Okay, here's a list of clean and unclean meat. Later on, when we wanted a king, God said it's a bad idea. You won't like it. Uh, He'll take your men to fight in his army. He'll take your women and he'll put them in his harem. It's a bad idea. People said, no, we want a king. Okay, have a king. It's a bad idea. If you want a king, you can have a king. It's a concession. And again, divorce. When we wanted to cruelly divorce our wives, God said, okay, let me at least give you a better way of doing it, a more humane way of doing it. And again, when we wanted to fight our way into Canaan, that was not God's plan. But all right, I'll be with you. I'll help you fight. I mean, what? The sun stayed up for Joshua so that more killing could go on. I mean, that is far, far, far from the ideal. Now, Jesus comes to show us, please, not that way anymore. And when we needed an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Ezekiel, remember, said, I gave you bad rules. That's a bad rule, but apparently uh, it was necessary. I find it fascinating the advice that is given here in Deuteronomy that looks far forward into the future. Great wisdom in this book. In Deuteronomy 4, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you today that if you disobey me, you will soon disappear from the land. Didn't that happen? I mean, those 10 northern tribes evaporated. You will not live very long in the land across the Jordan that you're about to occupy. You'll be completely destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among other nations where only a few of you will survive. There you will serve gods made by human hands, gods of wood and stone, gods that cannot see or hear, eat or smell. There you will look for the Lord your God. But notice, God is looking forward. Okay, I've got to reach these people who have rebelled, who've left me with some encouraging words. And if you search for him with all your heart, you will find him. I'm still there. I mean, these words were preserved as a way of encouragement to bring the people back. When you are in trouble and all those things happen to you, then you will finally turn to the Lord and obey him. He is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you. And he will not forget the covenant that he himself made with your ancestors. And the next eons were just the people rebelling, leaving God, and then coming back temporarily, and then rebelling, and then coming back. Uh, Very sad story, the rest of the Old Testament. This one is amazing in Deuteronomy 17. After you have taken possession of the land that the Lord your God is going to give you and have settled there, then you will decide you need a king. God didn't like it, but he knew you're going to want a king like all the nations around you. Be sure that that man you choose to be king is the one whom the Lord has chosen. Notice, here's the advice. He must be one of your own people. Do not make a foreigner your king. The king is not to have a large number of horses for his army. Um, Did Solomon have a large number of horses? Um, Well, this is quite amazing. He's not to send people to Egypt to buy horses because the Lord has said that his people are never to return there. 
The king is not to have many wives. There it is, right there. I mean, what did David and, of course, Solomon do? I mean, this is right here. For them to uh, avoid this trap, isn't that what led Solomon away from God? Because this would make him turn away from the Lord. Absolutely prophetic. And he's not to make himself rich with silver and gold. Again, what happened to Solomon? When he becomes king, he is to have a copy of the book of God's laws and teachings made from the original copy kept by the Levitical priests. He's to keep this book near him and read from it all his life. And if he does that, wouldn't he read this passage here about not having many wives and not having many horses and not making himself rich? So God is trying to prevent the catastrophe, which he knows is about to happen. There's so much we could talk about in Deuteronomy. It just—it gives me just a chance to talk about anything I want to talk about, basically. Uh, but one thing that's in here very much is, I believe, a fundamental understanding about God's wrath. This goes all the way through the Bible. Uh, this is just a good place to start. And so um, this is, well, this is quite a topic here. And I will just say that what I'm going to say might sound a bit radical, but I really believe it to be true the more, uh, the more that I go through and try to understand a topic like this. And I want to actually start briefly just by mentioning Luke 4 because I think Jesus is here announcing the platform of his kingdom. And Jesus went back to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as usual, he went to the meeting place on Sabbath. When he stood up to read from the scriptures, he was given the book of Isaiah the prophet. He opened it and read... This is from Isaiah 61. The Lord's Spirit has come to me because he's chosen me to tell the good news to the poor. The Lord has sent me to announce freedom for prisoners, to give sight to the blind, to free everyone who suffers, and to say, this is the year the Lord has chosen. Jesus closed the book, scroll, then handed it back to the man in charge and sat down. Everyone in the meeting place looked straight at Jesus. And then Jesus said to them, What you have just heard me read has come true today. All the people started talking about Jesus and were amazed at the wonderful things he said. They kept on asking, isn't this Joseph's son who grew up here? Now, uh, we could spend the whole time talking about this story because it's so fascinating because what happens immediately after this is a fight breaks out, basically. And Jesus... It almost seems like he's picking a fight with these people. He tells stories in the Old Testament about how God chose heathen people to you know, reveal something about himself, not Jews. And a few verses later, these people are throwing Jesus off a cliff or trying to. What happened? Uh, I think what happened here is uh, when we go back and read Isaiah 61, what he quoted from, Jesus left something out. He read this and he left something out. The spirit, this is from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the almighty Lord is with me because the Lord has anointed me to deliver good news to humble people. He sent me to heal those who are brokenhearted, to announce that captives will be set free and prisoners will be released. He has sent me to announce the year of the Lord's goodwill and the day of our God's vengeance to comfort all those who grieve. And he just left out the vengeance part. Now, just going back to this verse here, the people were amazed. This word in Greek can also mean shocked, stunned. And I think what happened here is this messianic prophecy 
I mean, this is what they held their hopes on, but the emphatic high-five moment for the people is vengeance on our enemies. I mean, the Messiah, in their mind, was going to come and just, I don't know, kick Roman behind. I mean, literally, that's what they were waiting for. He's going to come, and he's going to knock them out, and it's going to be great. And this is the part of the passage where they all stand up and high-five because God's going to have vengeance on those people. And he left it out, and they're shocked. And I think the reason Jesus left it out is they didn't understand God's vengeance. What does it mean? Well, starting here in Deuteronomy, we have a description of God's anger. My anger will flame up like fire and burn everything on earth. It will reach the world below and consume the roots of the mountains. I will bring on them, this is God talking, endless disasters and use all my arrows against them. God's talking about his people what, how, what would it look like in action when God brings endless disasters and uses all of his arrows against his people? Well, we read right on, right in this same passage, Deuteronomy 32, we get the clarification. They failed to see why they were defeated. They cannot understand what happened. Why were a thousand defeated by one and 10,000 by only two? Here's why. The Lord, their God, had abandoned them. Their mighty God had given them up. And the association in the Bible between God's anger, his wrath, and his abandoning, giving up, forsaken, handing over, all these very much related words is all the way through the Bible. The next time you read through, just look for it. It's there dozens of times. I'm just going to bring up a few examples of this and uh, try to clarify exactly what this means. Another passage in Deuteronomy. They will abandon me. Now the people are abandoning God and worship the pagan gods of the land they are about to enter. When that happens, I will become angry with them. Now what does God do in his anger? I will abandon them and they will be destroyed. Many terrible disasters will come upon them and then they will realize that these things are happening to them because I, their God, am no longer with them. He abandoned them. He gave them up. Now, this can, can still be troubling because why would God ever abandon? Why would God ever give people up? We read about how God is full of compassion and pity, not easily angered, shows great love and faithfulness. And I think ultimately this is a freedom issue because the choice when people rebel and they tell God again and again and again, please leave, we don't like you, we'd like to serve another God, I mean, if you have a teenager who you've used every method, I mean, you have love, 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 but maybe at times hard words, threats, even as a desperation measure, there comes a point when the only loving thing to do is to say, I'm going to let you go. It's the only thing. And it's a freedom issue. Jeremiah 34, very well then, I will give you freedom. This is God talking, the freedom to die by war, disease, and starvation. So the choice is God can become puppet master, control us even against our will, or he can let us go. And my position on this, and I'm going to try to make a good case for it, is that this is the expression of God's anger, to abandon, to leave, to respect freedom, and the natural consequences of that are absolutely devastating. Let's give some very specific examples. I'm just making a a little bit of a case here. There are many more examples, but let's give at least four. First, the Philistines. Um, We'll skip forward to Samuel and and talk about this very briefly, but you remember the two sons of Eli were absolute rebels, and they were using the Ark of the Covenant 
as a good luck charm in battle. All right, and so we have a description here in Psalms about how this was captured and why it happened. They angered him with their heathen places of worship, and with their idols they made him furious. God was angry when he saw it, so he rejected his people completely. Notice, what does God do in his anger? He abandoned his tent in Shiloh, the home where he had lived among us. He allowed our enemies to capture the covenant box, the symbol of his power and glory. Again, God is described as being angry. How does he act in his anger? He didn't protect them. He wasn't with them. He allowed them to be defeated. That's the expression of God's anger. Another example, the Babylonian captivity. This is talked about or warned about mainly in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And many very meaty passages in here about God's anger. In Jeremiah 21, God, just notice the description here. These are hard words. I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in this city. God, people and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. Now, God just said he was going to do it. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia, and he will burn it to the ground. God just said he was going to do it. But then we read on, he's given it over to the king of Babylon. I, the Lord, have spoken. And then we go right back in. God saying, I will set your palace on fire, and the fire will burn down everything around it. And here again, God is going to kindle the fire, which is described in Ezekiel. But then he just said he's going to hand it over. In the next chapter of Jeremiah, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord. It goes both ways. We abandon him. What else can he do? When he led you on the way, your own wickedness will correct you and your unfaithful ways will punish you. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. Notice, what is the punishing element? The punishing element is our own sinful, distrustful rebellion. That does the punishing. Jeremiah makes it more clear. Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. See, sin, rebellion, is inherently destructive. We don't need God to add a, an additional penalty punishment on top of it. Sin, the wages of sin, is death. Sin carries its own punishment. God, fortunately, has not allowed that uh, fully to occur. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its caves the horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into a desert. So again, abandoned, associated with God's wrath. And then uh, Jeremiah 34, the Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over to the king of Babylonia and he will burn it down. And the historical record shows that God didn't lay a finger on that city. He allowed the king of Babylon to come in and uh, they destroyed the city, the Babylonians burned down Jerusalem. Ezekiel, the words are even harder in Ezekiel. You will feel my anger when I turn it loose on you like a blazing fire. But next verse, and I will hand you over to brutal men, experts at destructions. Almost seems like God, man, he meets people here with a hard word, people hard of hearing perhaps. I'm going to do it. You better fear me. But then the clarification is there. How am I going to do it? I'm going to sadly hand you over 
and that's going to how, how you're going to be destroyed. And later on, I will hand you over to other nations, and they will rob you and plunder you. And this history, which goes through the books of Chronicles, ends with the sad words about how the king killed the young men of Judah, even in the temple. He had no mercy on anyone, young or old, man or woman, sick or healthy. God handed them all over to them, handed over, given over, forsaken, abandoned. All of these are associated with God's wrath. It almost seems like every bad thing that happens in the Bible, we have this description. The Assyrian captivity, same thing. This is described in Hosea. God says, I will attack the people of Israel like a lion. These are very hard words. I myself will tear them to pieces and then leave them. When I drag them off, no one will be able to save them. But notice there it is again. I will abandon my people until they've suffered enough for their sins and come looking for me. Perhaps in their suffering, they will try to find me. So first he's going to attack them like a lion and then we get the clarification. I'm going to abandon you and you're going to suffer and I hope you come back in that suffering. And the most wonderful words here, I think, of the expression of God's anger and how God feels at this time are in Hosea 11. They insist on turning away from me. They will cry out because of the yoke that is on them, but not one will lift it from them. How can I give you up, Israel? How can I abandon you? Same words. I mean, do we see the emotion, the pain, tearful words here of God as this giving up, handing over process occurs? And I like the message Bible here as it goes on. I can't bear to even think such thoughts. My insides churn in protest. How does God feel as he doles out his anger by abandoning? I mean, it's just like a parent losing a child. Terrible. Last example. You remember after Jesus is resurrected, the Jews rejected him and the Romans burned down Jerusalem. Notice how Paul describes what happened. Talking about the Jews. In this way, they have brought to completion all the sins they've always committed and now God's anger has at last come down on them. How did God's anger come down on them? He abandoned them. The Romans burned down Jerusalem. God didn't protect them. That's God's anger. But if we want to read, I mean, Paul put it all together. Romans 1, if you want the clearest description of God's anger, read the first chapter of Romans. And I used to wonder, why is that? Why does Paul start out with that? Because I think it's so foundational to our understanding. God's anger is revealed from heaven against all the sin and evil of the people whose evil ways prevented the truth from being known. God punishes them because what can be known about God is plain to them. For God himself made it plain. So the subject here is God's anger and God's punishment. Paul is going to describe what does it mean? What is God's anger? How does God punish? They say they are wise, but they are fools. Instead of worshiping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortals or birds or animals or reptiles. What does God do to those people? And so God has given those people over. Same description. To do the filthy things their hearts desire. And they do shameful things with each other. They exchange the truth about God for a lie. The truth about God. This is the foundation of everything important. This is ultimately what leads to God's anger, rejecting the truth about God. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself, who's to be praised forever. Because they do this, God has given them over to shameful passions. Because those people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, there it is again, what does he do to them? He has 
given them over to corrupted minds so that they do the things they should not do. So God, in his anger, people have totally rejected him. He, three times, gives them up, gives them up, gives them up, hands them over to do the things they want to do. And that sin, inherently, is destructive. Now, what's so fascinating here is we read on in Romans, and I think in this context, every time we read about God's wrath, now we are carrying the weight of all of this evidence from the Bible all the way through. Anytime we read about God's wrath, and what's fascinating here is in Romans 4, in discussing the death of Jesus, Paul says, because of our sins, he was given over to die. So we tie all of this together. I mean, don't we say things like, well, the sins of the world were laid upon Jesus. And we'll talk about what does that mean? He was treated as a sinner, though he had no sin. Um, We want to see what God's wrath ultimately looks like. Uh, We look at Jesus. What happened in Gethsemane and at the cross? And what did Jesus cry out as he died? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? Why have you handed me over? Why have you given me up? This separation ultimately leads to death. And that is a a major message from the cross. That is the expression of God's anger. But we don't see the father actively killing his son. This was a separation that was going on. Well, and I just think this gives us so much insight. We read into Revelation about the last plagues, the final expression of God's anger. And might this give us another possible way of understanding what happens as those plagues are being poured out. Well, some of you might be wondering, you know, well, Jesus got angry a few times. Jesus is always our best answer, right, for understanding things like this. Um, So there are two examples I'll I'll just mention in closing since we're on the subject of God's anger where Jesus got angry. What is, if you were to look in the face of God when he's angry, what would it look like? First example here is one time Jesus was in the synagogue and there was a man who had a paralyzed hand. Some people were there who wanted to accuse Jesus of doing wrong. So they watched him closely to see whether he would cure the man on the Sabbath. And what a horrible thing that would be. Jesus said to the man, come up here to the front. Then he asked the people, what does our law allow us to do on the Sabbath? To help or to harm? To save someone's life or to destroy it? That's a hard question, isn't it? Hmm. Can we do something good on the Sabbath? I mean, they couldn't answer the question, which I find amazing. They think. Jesus was angry as he looked around at them, but at the same time he felt sorry for them because they were so stubborn and wrong. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and it became well again. So the Pharisees left the synagogue and they were so amazed. They had a meeting and they all decided to follow Jesus because of this spectacular miracle. Uh, No, and met at once with some members of Herod's party and they made plans to kill Jesus for doing something good on the Sabbath outrageous. Now, but just notice here in the description, Jesus is described as being angry, but the person who wrote this in Mark, you know, as they looked into the face of Jesus in his anger, they saw anger, but at the same time, he felt sorry for them. Would this not be a very complex, I mean, the face of Jesus in his anger, he is simultaneously, he feels sorry for these people. They're his people, right? They're his children. And so I think, um, We have here just a complex mixture of pity, love, compassion, and yet anger for these people for being so stubborn and wrong. Okay, do you have the ability, if someone looks at you when you're angry 
and someone says, yeah, you know, uh, he was angry, but boy, had a really felt sorry for that person as he was talking with them. Yeah, that's kind of hard to do, but that was the face of Jesus. And the other one other example, what would you think, what's the best example of Jesus' anger? All the stories, what comes to mind? Yeah, cleansing of the temple. Well, read the description here in Matthew, where Jesus goes in, whip in hand, turning over tables, and he says, but my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a hideout for thieves. But notice, the blind and crippled came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The chief priests and the teachers of the law became angry when they saw the wonderful things he was doing and the children shouting in the temple, praise to David's son. Now, when, uh, when a man gets angry in a room, uh, who's the first to leave? Isn't it the children? I mean, they're out of there in a second, right? And here we have Jesus here, I mean, being angry. And notice that the guilty ones are running for their lives and who comes to Jesus? The blind and crippled came to him. And who else is there? Children are running around Jesus, however it happens, singing. And the Pharisees come back. And uh, what is going on? I mean, do you have the ability to get angry in a way that children come to you? Uh, that's, uh, that's quite a talent that Jesus had. Okay, so um, I think the point is we cannot look up anger in our English dictionary and apply that definition to God. I think the definition of God's anger all the way through the Bible is God sadly allowing us to experience our own bad choice if we choose to go that direction. But in the face of Jesus, we see even in anger, children and sick people feeling comfortable coming up to him. All right, let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for the clarification, the evidence that is there all the way through the Bible. Please help us to dig deeper and deeper to understand everything important about you, your character, and the consequences of going in another direction. Please help us to choose for you. Help us, our picture of who you are, to increasingly become more and more like Jesus. Amen.